0: hello it's david here thank you for listening to the leader and while you're here why not rate and share the podcast through your provider by hitting one button you can help us reach lots of other people so they can hear our news interviews and analysis every day at 4 p.m make sure you subscribe too now from the evening standard in london this is the leader (coughs) Hi, I'm David Marsland. The blanket two metre rule has gone. You can have a dinner
1: party on your house now. And... Mr Speaker, I can tell the house that we will also reopen restaurants and pubs. Hallelujah!
0: Boris Johnson's lifting a raft of lockdown restrictions, also allowing museums to reopen. But will they? The Evening Standard's Lizzie Edmonds on the legacy of lockdown.
2: And... Situations in which wildlife, wild animals, are traded, slaughtered for meat in close proximity to people, and we know that you know the proximity of wild animals to people can increase the risk of zoonotic diseases. Um, there have been many before this. There have been warnings about this potential risk
0: from Kenya. The CEO of Conservation Group Space for Giants, Dr. Max Graham, as they team up with the Evening Standard to stop the wildlife trade. Taken from the Evening Standard editorial column, this is the leader. For the whole thing, pick up the newspaper or head to standard.co.uk slash comment. In a moment, why the end of lockdown might not mean everywhere actually opening up.
3: Confidence starts with loving who you are.
1: wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.
0: Hallelujah, they cried in the Commons as the Prime Minister confirmed pubs will be able to reopen from July 4th. And he didn't stop there.
1: Almost as eagerly awaited as a pint will be a haircut, particularly by me, Mr. Speaker. And so we will reopen hairdressers with appropriate precautions, including the use of visors. <laughs>
0: But there'll be none of this in churches. They can reopen, but singing remains banned. This isn't quite the end of lockdown. Much of the restriction lifting comes with caveats. The blanket two metre social distancing rule is out when it's not possible like public transport. So one metre is in, but it's plus mitigation. Wear a mask, keep your chat short. We will not be returning to normal. Nevertheless, our editorial column says it's a welcome step forward.
4: Society needs to find a way to open up while controlling the threat of the virus. Other countries around the world have shown that it can be done, provided people stay aware of the risks and healthcare systems respond quickly to any sudden outbreaks. We can do it in Britain. It is safe to visit our great museums and galleries and safe, if rules are followed, to eat out and drink in pubs. How they cope with the costs of social distancing is another matter, but London is returning to life after lockdown and the government is right to be leading the way.
0: But will everywhere that can reopen actually reopen? The Evening Standards' Lizzie Edmonds is with me over Zoom. And Lizzie, you've been talking to some of those art galleries and museums that are being given the green light to get people back in, but there's still lots of rules and regulations, so can they actually do it?
4: Well, that's a very good question, really, because, yes, they've been given the green light, as you say, for a couple of weeks' time. And whether or not they will open immediately on July the 4th, just because they can, doesn't mean they will. They've got a lot of considerations to, to, to take into account, that being, you know a lot of our famous galleries and a lot of our famous museums rely on a huge tourism um, sector you know kind of almost half of the people that are through their doors every day are tourists obviously they don't exist at the moment and um, we haven't got really got the tourism industry back up and running so perhaps even you know a capacity of about 30 percent of the people they usually have through the doors coming in perhaps and is that going to be enough for a lot of them to justify opening their doors, paying specialist staff, you know, a lot of staff, because these venues are large, most of them, you know, it's not a, few, a handful of staff, it's, it's a lot of them, and the considerations they have to take into that. So most of the galleries and most of the museums are looking for a summer opening but more to mid mid july late july into august
0: but there must be having been closed for so long there must be a financial pressure on a lot of these ones i guess particularly the smaller museums
4: yes there's a huge financial problem for a lot of our famous and very important cultural institutions to to london and to the uk i mean as you say, they haven't been open for, it'll be four months if, if we're looking at a mid-July to late July uh, opening. That's a long time. That's. It's going to be catastrophic for a lot of them, and a lot of them will have to have that very hard decision and hard conversations of, can can we do this can we open again a lot of directors were very worried about how many people would come through the doors because a lot of them do rely nowadays on um ticket sales and in you know, the gift shop and cafes and things like that because government grants aren't as um aren't as as generous as they have been before so yeah, I, we will see some casualties. I, I think that's almost certain.
0: One thing that could work in some of these buildings' favour is their size of them. You know, if you think of going into something like the Turbine Hall in the Tate Modern, it should be relatively easy to socially distance there, shouldn't it?
4: Yes, I don't think uh, our galleries and museums have a space issue. They're not, um, they're not facing the same challenges as our gyms are or our restaurants are. Some of our institutions have huge amounts of space. So that's going to be great. I think especially for families facing a long summer holiday after a long <laughs> a long um, few months of school um, home schooling will be desperate to have something to do with, with kids. So it's just whether or not they can get enough people back to, to make it viable for them.
0: But there are other areas such as theatres which still will remain closed. London, even with its museums open isn't going to be the London we know from previous summers, is it?
4: No, 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 it's not. I mean, at the beginning of the pandemic, everyone was saying these are unprecedented circumstances and now it feels like everyone, the new kind of, Zeitgeisters to say that it's the new normal and I think it will be very strange for a lot of people going to all these museums and galleries and um, cinemas and it not really being the same it's just going to be very different or you know not coming into contact with people in the same way I mean I think as I've said the museums and galleries have a fortunate position in that a lot of them aren't particularly overpopulated yes okay the big kind of blockbuster exhibitions you would have hundreds of people through the doors every day but a lot of the galleries are quite quiet, and that's what a lot of people love about them, about going to a museum, going to a gallery, having some time, having some space to yourself. Um, so that won't change, but then you will have the inevitable sanitising, you will have the inevitable screening, you will have, you know, not being able to go um, closer to people. There will be capacities on all of the galleries and, and museums, that meaning that not that many people can go in. So, and wider, our cultural institutions will take a hit. As you say, theatres, probably not going to be open this year. Restaurants, yes, but it's not going to be the same as, you know, gathering around tables and eating and (laughs) drinking with your friends. It's going to be very different and I think it will take a while to adjust.
0: Next.
2: At the heart of this, it's as simple as a single animal travelling a long distance to a market and being slaughtered and eaten. I mean, that's the very essence of this
0: challenge. Dr Max Graham from Space for Giants on the Evening Standards campaign to end the illegal wildlife trade.
1: Hi, I'm Lawrence Delalio, host of the Evening Standard rugby podcast, brought to you in partnership with QBE Business Insurance. The show is available to listen to now and right up to the end of the season when the winners of the Champions Cup will be crowned at Tottenham Hotspur Stadium and the fight for the premiership title will be decided at Twickenham. QBE is one of the world's leading insurers, and they will help your business build resilience through risk management and insurance solutions. Subscribe and download now wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.
2: Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.
0: With dogs in cages, exotic birds strung up by their legs, rare animals for sale as food or medicine, the world's wet markets can be grim places to look around. What you don't see is the massive amount of money being made and the organised gangs operating behind the scenes. The consequences of these places, though, are visible to all. We cannot say for sure that Covid-19 came from a wet market in Wuhan, but it's at the very top of a very short list of suspects now the Evening Standard and Independent, are partnering with conservation Group Space for Giants to campaign for the trade to end. Their CEO, Max Graham, joins me now from their HQ in Kenya. Max, regardless of where COVID-19 came from, we know that wet markets have been the source of previous viruses.
2: I mean, the first thing to say is that we've got to be quite careful about the terminology, wet market. I think we all know what we think we mean, but a wet market is literally just a place that people go to get their fresh produce. Um, So I think what we're talking about are situations in which wildlife, wild animals are traded, slaughtered for meat in close proximity to people. And we know that, you know, the proximity of wild animals to people can increase the risk of zoonotic diseases. There have been many before this. There have been warnings about this potential risk. Experts out there, epidemiologists are not surprised of the emergence of deadly disease. In fact, they've been warning um, experts, political leaders about this for a long time. I think what's perhaps shocked all of us is just how quickly that disease spread um, and how it's caused literally the end of the way we live as we used to know it.
0: But as you've said, they've been around for a long time. There's been acknowledgement of the risk of diseases coming from them. But up to this point, it seems that it's been impossible to stop these markets from continuing. Has that changed? Is there a will now to do more?
2: I think that from the ashes of this crisis, we're going to see an enormous amount of political will behind preventing the next pandemic. The supply of wildlife, particularly that kind of that wildlife that presents the greatest risk to people has been an issue for a long time. The illegal wildlife trade has been very hard to stop. It's the fourth biggest illegal trade in the world. It ranks up there with the illegal arms, human trafficking, and uh, drugs. So it's, uh, it's a source of money for very powerful and dangerous criminals. Now, I think one of the challenges we face is that wildlife is also a source of protein for tens of millions of people globally. So it's not sufficient just to say, end all wildlife trade. We have to be quite surgical in the interventions that are required to ensure that the conditions in which species... Um, that are traded can present a risk to human health are targeted. It's not just about closing down markets. It's actually about stopping the demand and stopping the supply of wildlife. Um, We're very focused on the supply side of the illegal wildlife trade. Uh, We invest in security um, through our partners on the ground so that rangers can protect wildlife. And we invest in prosecution capacity, so that illegal wildlife criminals can be convicted. And then we support initiatives like this, global campaigns that bring awareness and political will behind ending demand for trade and ending the conditions that could allow for animals to be slaughtered or traded in close proximity to urban populations.
0: So what will it take, Max, to end this? What sort of things do you... What are the difficulties that you see when you're working on the ground, when you're trying to combat, as you've said, an industry that is worth an extremely large amount of money and that will be a huge amount of resistance?
2: There are three ways to tackle this, and we'll start from the top. The first is we have to see new international binding commitments from political leaders to a convention that tackles surgically the trade in wildlife and the emergence of um, conditions that can lead to deadly diseases transferring from a wild animal or a domestic animal into a person. And it's got to be carefully drawn up with the best um, advice possible, and then it has to be ratified by the big global powers. And I think it's a huge opportunity for the UK to work hand in hand with China, uh, obviously other 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 nations, but, you know, China and the UK have a real opportunity to work, work together on this. Second, we need the regulations that are outlined in that convention to be nationalized. So it's, it's all very well having new regulations, but unless you invest in Prosecution capacity on the ground, the ability of national judicial systems to actually enforce laws. Unless you invest in that capacity, a convention will go nowhere. So you've got to combine it with that. The third element is really around how do we ensure that wildlife, natural habitat is valuable so that it is protected, so we don't get the situation where we get habitats fragmented, where we get wildlife being captured and traded to supply the illegal wildlife trade. And that really requires investment in wildlife economies, in uh, the protection of natural habitat. You know, it, it seems a far cry now, but wildlife tourism, you know, ecotourism was the backbone of many protected areas' annual budgets there has to be something else that covers the cost of protection now. And I expect um, ecosystem, climate change, uh, carbon emission offsets could be a big, big player in protecting our collective health going forward by ensuring that those natural ecosystems where wildlife come from are effectively protected. So I think that we're all linked and tied up to this issue now. And I think the, the readers of The Eating Standard could do a huge amount to um, both contribute financially to efforts to stop this trade and also to work collectively to encouraging the British government to stand side by side with other um, nations to get behind a responsible uh, and binding commitment so that this never happens again. We've got to prevent the next pandemic.
0: And that's the leader. You can read more about our Stop the Wildlife Trade campaign in the paper or at standard.co.uk. And keep up with current events by listening to our morning bulletins every weekday at 7am. Just ask your smart speaker for the news from the Evening Standard. This podcast is back tomorrow at 4pm.